Hello and welcome to The Things That Make Us. Today's guest is television presenter Dallas Campbell. He originally trained as an actor, but applied his curiosity and ability to tell a good story to the art of communicating science. Specialising in adventurous capers, he can be found down tunnels, up the outside of skyscrapers, or in spacecraft, revealing the wonders of our engineered world. In this episode, Dallas joined me at the Institute of Making, clutching his five things, and I began by asking him if he had trouble picking them. go through life imagining desert island discs, imagining us we're going to be on desert island discs yeah. and we sort of think about um, what music we're going to choose as part of our soundtrack of our lives but actually objects, gosh, there's so many and as you get older I'm a collector, you know, I collect things and I, I spend a lot of time struggling with trying to chuck stuff out as you get older and you collect more stuff and you know, I don't have room for all this stuff. Do you have a space at home then where you think of your things living, your collections living? Yeah, well I've got this cabinet, it's a wooden cabinet which I love. And I have a secret museum drawer, which is my little drawer, which is my museum. In it I put things that are of interest and I think, I don't know, that I really like and things that possibly shouldn't be there. Oh, nice. That's the stolen things. Well, the sort of borrowed things. The problem with museums is that museums, wonderful places as they are, wonderful spaces, they're not tactile. Mm. And I think part of the thing of being a human being is, particularly with objects, is you want to bloody touch it. You actually want to put your hand through the glass because it's it's no good just seeing an object. I mean, it is. You get a certain thing seeing an object, but actually putting your hand on it and feeling it and, and being able to get that kind of physical response to an object is really really important so my museum in my house you're free to touch it in fact actually my first object is kind of about touch go on then really. let's see your first object well I, I didn't actually bring it because it's too big but i brought um i brought things that are, are sort of related to it um you may recognize some of these these are mission patches actually from um uh, Tim Peake's mission, who's the uh, British astronaut who's currently on the International Space Station. This is his Principia patch. So the last couple of years, I've been um, babysitting and looking after some spacesuits, which has been a real privilege. It's been really interesting because people are just fascinated by spacesuits, particularly kids. By kids, I mean grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> they come around and they, they, they see these spacesuits. So they've been in your house? Yeah, they've been in my house. And I've been looking Two? after... Uh, well, at sets? one point I had three... Uh, and the, the suits that I that I have, they're, they're, they're Sokol suits, they're Russian spacesuits. They're the spacesuits that astronauts use to travel to the International Space Station. And they're designed for the, for the, for the Soyuz spacecraft. I've actually got the, spo- the Soyuz spacecraft with me, which I thought, Oh no, the escape tower has just broken off my model <gasps> Soyuz. That's terrible. <gasps> okay, I'll glue it back on. So a few years ago, I remember being slightly drunk in a pub with a friend of mine, and we were discussing, you know, if you lived in a big stately home, you know you have a, a sort of suit of armour yeah, at, yeah. at the foot of the stairs, and we thought that was cool. But actually what would be really cool would be to have a spacesuit. Uh, there is something really wonderful about spacesuits in the way that they conjure up adventure and exploration and something going beyond human. It kind of extends us as humans. And of course there are objects that you never ever get to touch, because if you do see a spacesuit, they tend to be behind glass in a museum. Obviously they're extremely valuable. But a, a charity and a trust that I've been working with in America, they have a, a bunch of spacesuits which are very specifically designed that people can actually touch them and put them on and put a glove on. And I think that's a really important thing. It makes you closer to that whole idea. Basically, it is a wearable spacecraft. I mean, these 
ones aren't designed for spacewalking, but they're like an emergency pressure suit. So if there's a cabin depressurization, on the, the suit inflates, which surrounds you in pressure. So it's like a mini wearable spacecraft. And they're beautiful objects, extraordinarily designed. The materials are beautiful. You know, this sort of simple Russian design. And the thing that's so amazing about it is, and people can't believe it, it's like you undo these big zips at the front, these big heavy zips, uh, and out comes this great uh, rubberized bag, almost like a sort of plastic bag that spills out a bit like kind of alien or something. It's quite, it's quite dramatic and quite worrying. And it's a, a bag and you climb in and that's how you get inside the suit. And then what you do is, and this is wonderful Russian simple engineering, you scrunch it up, the actual, a, a bit like you're tying up a balloon, and you put this rubber seal around it and that seals it, and that gives you the pressure So seal. this piece of <laughs> so that bungee piece of, this piece of um, wiggly worm. Yeah, it's a rubber band. It's the, the, the spacesuit really works on a rubber band, and it's a wonderful piece of engineering because it's like, if it breaks, you just use another one. Uh, they're not expensive. Yeah. Uh, they're simple. Yeah. Rubber bands work. They're t tried and tested bits of engineering. Uh, and it makes me really happy uh, because it's that principle of simplicity and, and common sense. When you're designing something that people rely on for their lives, you don't want cutting edge. I mean, the thing is, if you're on an airplane, which is a pressurized cigar tube, if there is a depressurization, an emergency, you don't need a spacesuit because the pilot can just go down to a safe level and you're okay. If you're in a space rocket, you don't have that luxury. So this is why they wear these, these, these iconic white spacesuits. They're wonderful, beautiful objects, and everyone looks at them and goes, ah, it's fascinating. Do you so I bought let your this visitors into put them on. Well, it's you know there's a couple which is which is absolute which is a no no because they're flown suits and they're they're extremely valuable, um, particularly the Apollo moon suits, the suits that went to the moon, which are incredibly valuable. They're all in the Smithsonian in America, and of course they were all designed and, and made by women seamstresses who stitched bras and girdles, worked for Playtex, the company that makes bras and girdles, who are sort of wholesale moved to the production line of making these suits, and it's just that wonderful craft of sewing and pattern cutting and, and that we sort of sort of forget in the sort of white heat of space exploration ultimately these people are making something that you can touch and you can feel anyway you must of, you must have worn it secretly on a friday night home alone <laughs> i couldn't possibly say but if you look at my facebook profile picture <laughs> you might see it so anyway so there you go i brought that that was my first object that's uh, is a spacesuit. It's a spacesuit, in uh, but the one that bits of it that can sort of fit in my bag. So I brought a, a couple of patches and my and my little uh, my little model rocket. But it goes. It's, I, I, I guess the idea is something you can touch is uh, important for me. That leads us on then to touching object number two. Yes. So touching object number two. Um, again, I brought this from my museum, my mini museum in my house. There was a cartoon series, Mr. Ben, which was. Um, do you remember Mr. Ben? Mm -hmm. So Mr. Ben, who would, had a sort of ordinary life and slightly kind of dull life and, and, and had a, was a sort of Walter Mitty character, wanted to always be more exciting and do exciting things. And there was the magic costume shop at the end of Festive Row where he lived and in there was the magic costume guy and he put on various outfits and would have that adventure, like the spacesuit was always the one I really, really, really liked. But I always remember there was a really nice sort of narrative thing which would draw the whole uh, story to a conclusion that he'd always take a souvenir with him from his adventure that would remind him of his adventure. Um, I think in the spacesuit episode, it was some pebbles that he found on another planet. Well, I can't quite remember, but you know, I have, for my job, I kind of get to go, I have access and I get to go to some amazing places over the years and amazing things. Um, so sometimes I try and 
take a little souvenir with me to, <laughs> to sort of remind me. They're generally sort of me me metallic things. I've done a lot of engineering, so I tend. I was going to set up a website called sciencemetal.com of bits of metal that were once part of interesting scientific <laughs> experiments or things. Um, I brought a little piece of uh, something which I got. Someone gave it to me. This isn't actually stolen, but it makes me really happy. And it's a piece of foil, and it's from a dark matter experiment. But it's ooh, it's ooh. it's so utterly light. Oh, don't sneeze. Exactly, and it's. It, it's beautiful. I don't even, you'll be able to tell me what it is, but it's sort of, it's the lightest thing and sort of air just sort of carries it. Hang on, there's... And it just makes me really happy and it lives in my, my, my museum. But So this is now on my hand and if I raise my hand and then lower it fast, oh, the foil floats in midair. Yeah, but you can't actually feel it on your skin. It's so, no. it's almost like a sort of, almost, I can imagine like some, something like aerogel or that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But it's something very pleasing about this. So this is a piece of science metal from so my... It's just so incredibly thin. I mean... Yeah, what is it? Is it um, aluminium or...? It looks to me like it's aluminium. But the process that they would have had to go through to make that, I mean, the amount of rolls and... It's, almost, it's like a silver leaf, actually, isn't it? You know, if you do gold leaf... Exactly. It's like silver leaf. Exactly. Has it ever changed or tarnished? No, not at all. No, my, my museum you, in my drawer is... I feel like it's no, no, no. also fragile. I think it is quite fragile, but my museum has very strict climate control. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, this came from a dark matter experiment. I saw it on the desk, and they had a big sheet of it, and they were like, come and look at this. And I'm like, oh my God, that's the best stuff ever. Please give me some. So they gave me this little... Um, I don't even know what it's for or Does why. Does it make a sound? Try it near your microphone. You hear that? I mean, it's like, I, I guess, yeah, it's a bit like, exactly like kind of gold leaf, so incredibly thin, and any current of air will just sort of take it away. But it's and just... It's almost platinum leaf. Yeah, maybe, maybe it is. It, maybe, maybe it is platinum, platinum leaf. Maybe it's really valuable. Who knows? When I die, I'll bequeath it to you. <laughs> okay, I'll put that away. So wow, that's, that's magnificent. That is my science metal. My next thing, which is... Uh, it's half because of my children and half another sort of thing that I collected on an adventure. And it's a pearl shell. Mm. It's from a, an oyster shell, half an oyster shell, but a big oyster. This is the Pictada Maximus oyster. Which so is it's a, the size of both of my hands put together. So yeah. it's a double sort of span with and a beautiful pearly interior. It's the mother of pearl, which is, which is why it's, this is so, is so valuable and was so valued. I mean, back in the day, people would dive not for the pearls itself particularly but actually for the, the shell which is what, obviously it's where we have mother of pearl so there's a piece or, being taken out there is that a scar from someone yeah i mean no off? that's where the actual animal itself okay. would have sort of lived and obviously it's a, it's a bivalve so there would have been two of those and of course it's just as a material again it's it's interesting and different from everything else because this has obviously been produced by biology rather than chemistry and engineering and it's um it's very pleasing obviously the iridescent nature of it and the way that it's um, the way that it sort of glints in the light and the fact that that's been produced by an animal, yeah. I think is really interesting. And also, it, I guess it's interesting because we don't value it from this side because the human brain... So the outside of the shell. <coughs> it's yeah. like, meh. And then you go, ooh, we turn it over. <laughs> it says quite a lot about us. And about us. How, how our love of shiny our things. Our love of shiny <laughs> things. Anyway, the, so, I mean, that's interesting in itself, this, 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 this animal. Um, I actually found this myself. I actually was filming in an Australian pearl farm and we were doing a piece about natural treasures. So we went, I went pearl diving and there's an incredible history of 
pearl diving in Australia and up in Broome in the northwest coast of Australia. And this is, this is actually a wild oyster. And you don't get pearls themselves in wild oysters. I mean, they're farmed. And the way you get them is you implant uh, something inside the animal. It can be a little, a little sort of ball thing. And then the animal will produce the, I think it's, is it nacre it's called? Nacre? I'm not sure how you pronounce it. The actual material itself to create a pearl. But actually wild pearls themselves aren't so common. So I, for the purposes of television, did a bit of free diving where you have to hold, hold your breath and dive down. And I've done a little bit of it before and I was quite into doing it. So I said, well, you know, can we go free diving for a pearl? And they're like, well, you might find an oyster, but you're not going to find a pearl. Lo and behold, <laughs> we went, I went free diving with an Australian free diving champion and we picked up a, an oyster. Uh, which we opened actually on camera on the boat, not expecting to find a pearl, and we found a pearl. And here it is, and it's you can see how it's sort of not very round. It's, this is sort of heart shaped, but it's, oh, it's a, quite this big. is a natural, real pearl, which it's yeah, wow, it's, it's the pretty depth, chunky. The depth of sort of the iridescence and the weight of it. I was that's the surprising. I mean, it feels the weight of a little stone. Yeah, it does, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a quite really, blue, actually, isn't it? Yeah, it's a beautiful... And I, you know what, I, 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 I so much prefer it to the fact to a perfectly round pearl. I like the fact that it's heart-shaped. Um, and it's lovely. Anyway, so I gave it to my daughter, so it's hers. I had to borrow it back so I could bring it in today. I keep meaning to put it on a chain or do something with it. But, um, so were so, you the sort of child that was picking things up from around? <coughs> Definitely, yeah. I mean, I, I remember I had a, a teacher, a substitute teacher, actually, who came into our school for maybe only a week when I was very little and I must have been about seven or eight or six or seven even and I remember she brought in a, a box and in the box were all kinds of objects there was fossils um, a little bit of home taxidermy she'd done a stuffed mouse and a stuffed bat a couple of bones there was a I think a fox skull and, and just fascinated by the variety of different objects you know by what they meant I mean the fossil the fact that here's a piece of rock an ammonite millions of years old with this beautiful shape and structure uh, just was fascinating to me and I was absolutely in love with it uh, and the teacher left but she gave me the box she gave me the box of stuff and I, I, I you know I, I, which was amazing I don't set out I'm not I don't set out to collect things I think I like things that are odd and interesting and diverse and different you know I like you know like this sort of yeah. pearl shell you know, or a, a rubber band or a bit of tin foil <laughs> you know things that have a story connected to them or things that remind me of an adventure or somewhere I've been or a person. Or... Right, so object okay. number four. This is a, uh, a packet of cards, which is an object I love. Uh, when, I was, when I first moved down to London and I was an out-of-work actor and trying to scrape a living, I sort of thought, you know, I, you know, I was working in restaurants and doing all the things that out-of-work actors do. Um, and I taught myself magic as a way of generating income and also I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with conjuring and magic and, and <clears throat> not obviously not thinking it's magic but just the skill involved and that wonderful thing of not knowing how something was done. I just, I just totally fell in love with it and this was before, we, before the days of sort of Darren Brown and, and although you know and they, I'm sure he was sort of doing stuff but I, he wasn't known at the time um, and uh, what's his chops the American guy. Um, 
David Blaine. David Blaine, you know, was, it was sort of pre-David Blaine, so this was the sort of early, mid-90s. And just in Clerkenwell, at the bottom of Rosebury Avenue, just bottom of Leather Lane, is a International Magic, which is a little magic shop just on the corner. And I, I was actually bizarrely working in an office um, doing a temp job right next to it. And I was always a little bit apprehensive walking in because I'm like, wow, this is like only, only like professionals can go in. Or like, I didn't know what it was inside. I was like slightly scared. One lunch break, I sort of plucked up courage. And I, and I walked in and it was Jerry Sadowitz was behind the counter, you know, the Scottish comedian yeah, magician yeah. who I was like a massive fan of. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Jerry Sadowitz. And he was like, well, what can I get you? And I was like, well, I, I don't know anything about magic. What could, what, how, what, where, where, where do I start? What do I do? And he um, plonked down a video um, on basic card magic, volume one, and a packet of cards. He's like, knock yourself out. So I got really, really into it, and I became pretty good and proficient, and I, and I worked hard, and I got really into the, the, the sort of principles of, of, sort of card magic particularly. Um, and then it became a thing. It became quite a, you know, a thing. Um, but as objects themselves, I just, and this is a particular brand that pretty much every magician uses, bicycle. What's so good about them? Then? Good question. So they're poker size, so they're slightly thicker. You know those sort of Waddington's cards that your granny's had in her house since the dawn of time. There is this thing that people have had like <laughs> the same pack of cards in their family for generations. You know, I go through a pack a day doing card tricks because they get bent and they get ripped up and torn and eaten and all, and all kinds of things. So they're slightly, um, slightly wider, so poker as opposed to bridge. So those Waddington cards are slightly thinner. Mm -hmm. um, and these, you know, they're, they're slightly squarer than, than the bridge sized cards. So that's one thing. The back, which has the sort of the bicycle logo, you can see there's like a like an angel sort of oh, yeah. front on on the bicycle. Yeah, it's perfectly symmetrical both ways. So a lot of cars you might have might have a, a picture on the back which won't be symmetrical. So that's useful for a whole different load of tricks if you want, you know. So it doesn't matter which way up they are. Mm -hmm. So that's useful. Also they have what's called a um, air cushion finish. It's actually um, a sort of linen finish. And if you just hold them in your hand and spread them out, you'll notice the difference between some sort of cheap plasticky cards which don't sort of fan out nicely. Yeah, these glide. They glide, exactly. Yeah. That's the sort of air cushion, they call it. And it's that sort of, if you sort of run, run, run your nail across, you can feel yeah. why that might happen. This tiny, tiny sort of ridges, almost like a kind of linen, good quality paper that would let the air get underneath. Really satisfying. And so I... Um, there's just something, I, I love holding them. There's something, I, I spent so much time learning to do uh, card tricks. There's something beautiful and elegant. Yeah. There's no complicated story. It's something that everyone can see and appreciate and it sort of transcends But also there's language. the art of performance, right? There's yeah, you have to sell it. What makes good magicians good magicians is it's, you know, it's being an actor and it's, it's being it's, able to sell it. It's presentation, it. it's your job as a presenter. This exactly. is, you have to. Exactly yeah. right. The reason I'm doing what I'm doing now is because of Ken Campbell. I uh, worked with Ken a lot in the mid-90s. So Ken and I and a bunch of people, people like Nina Conti, who you might know, and, and, and others, we did a play together called The Warp, which was the world's longest play, <laughs> 24 hours. So it was a bit like joining a cult, because you know, it was this bizarre um, sort of hippie Hamlet. It was 10 times longer than Hamlet, and it sort of charted the main character from 60s, 50s beatnik Soho through to Alistair Crowley's house in the shores of Loch Ness via Scientology and flying saucers and this kind of crazy world, this landscape. 
And at the time we were doing the warp, Ken was doing a documentary series for Channel 4 called Reality on the Rocks. And it was Ken trying to get his head around quantum mechanics. It was near the time when Stephen Hawking's book had come out. And everyone had it, but no one had read it. And Ken hadn't read it. And Ken was like, right, okay, I'm going to try and understand brief history of time. And off he went to CERN to meet people like David Deutsch and these sort of interesting uh, people who were in the, on the fringes of uh, theoretical physics and cosmology. Um, and I thought this was a wonderful, what a great idea this was. And f instead of having this, someone who's knowledgeable about science, let's get someone who's really has no science knowledge to go and find stuff out. So um, I sort of nicked that idea. And actually with Ken, we made a little, Ken and I made a little um, sort of prototype of a similar sort of idea called Dallas and Wonderland, where off I'd go and have sort of adventures trying to do impossible things. I remember right after doing the warp, I'd sort of go up for castings for commercials. And I was like, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, the Ken thing would, the, the, I would imbue, did, did, ever, did Ken ever tell you about gastromancy? This idea, gastromancy, huh? where you, you suck up spirits through the anus. Oh, yes, and, yes. You know, that, Ken was really into this whole idea. And I used to, um, yeah, I used to kind of go to these kind of really dull castings for really dull commercials with really dull people who'd been told what to do by really dull companies and sort of put a bit of Ken into it. And I'd get the job. And I, I used to not be able to not get a job. I'd always sort of, uh, you know, bit of, uh, and uh, it would be yours. Suck it up. Suck it up. Um, so I always, I always try and put a bit of Ken into what I do. Next thing. I brought a book. Um, it's a biography of Peter Finch, who was an actor. Talking about actors, was talking about Ken Campbell. Um, Peter Finch was a, uh, uh, people always think he was an Australian actor. He was actually he was a British actor. Uh, he was actually my half uncle, so he was my dad's half brother. One of the things that annoys me and it increasingly annoys me as I, as I get older, this is a bit of a moan and a bit of a gripe, is that whenever you meet anyone ever, people always ask you, why are you called Dallas? And I, I, at first, you know, it, it, you don't really, it's fine. You just sort of, there is no reason, you know, other than it's my name. But detractors, people who don't like you, pe you know, television reviewers, people on Twitter, all that kind of stuff, they, they love to sort of pick up on it like it's some kind of affectation. Like this is some kind of wacky stage name. So there's two things here. The why you call Dallas, people always say, huh, were your parents fans of the show? Were you conceived in Dallas? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's annoying to start with. Uh, uh, and then people go, oh, I bet you get that all the time, which is doubly annoying. And then also people, because I'm actually Robert Dallas Campbell, so Dallas is my middle name. So people go, aha, it's not your real name. I'm like, no, 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 it's my real name. It's what I've been called since birth. But it's your middle name. You also know people who are known by their middle name because it's, it's not that rare for people to be known by their middle name. Anyway, so I brought this in to sort of clear it up. Yes, so um, my grandfather was uh, Peter Finch's father, and there he is. Here's a picture of um, uh, Major Edward Dallas Jock Campbell. So Dallas was also his middle name, uh, and he was also known as, as Dallas Campbell, not because of for any affectation, but because it's a name, and it's a Scottish name, and it's not that uncommon, and I know plenty of other Dallases, and we all, when we, when we talk to each other, bang our heads together. There was a, an annoying newspaper review the other day, but someone, I did a program and someone didn't like it very much, and that was their first thing they, they sort of picked up on. They were like, ha, who calls himself Dallas? You know, it's, it's a sort of that, and, it, I, and I want to punch them <laughs> really hard. Anyway, so that, that's something that annoys me. Anyway, I brought this book in because it is, there you go, that's part of my life. That's my grandfather, who's also called Dallas. Um, and it's just something I have to deal with on a daily basis when I meet people for the first time. 
Well, those are some fantastic objects. Thank you very much for sharing them with me and everyone listening. Thank you. Thank you. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. listening to the things that make us to see pictures of the things selected by the guest in this and all episodes please visit the things that make us.com you can get in touch with the show via twitter at things make us and if you like what you hear please subscribe so not to miss the next installment